multidimensional, transforming, musical, linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, today's program is a talk that Sasha Shulkin gave at the Jamaica Mind States Conference in 2002. I'd like to think that everyone who hears this podcast already knows a lot about Sasha, but if you don't, then you owe it to yourself to go to Arrowhead or Wikipedia or just anywhere on the net and look him up. In my humble opinion, he's the world's greatest chemist, and in a perfect world, he'd already have his Nobel Prize. What do I base that over-the-top statement on, you ask? Well, just pick up a copy of P-Call and T-Call, uh, two books that he and his wife Anne wrote, and check out the chemical stories that make up the second half of each book. There you're not only going to find a listing of, oh, well over 200 phenethylamines and tryptamines that he synthesized, most of which I believe had never been built before Sasha did it, but synthesizing these compounds wasn't the first step, nor was it even the most important step, I don't think. The first step was in figuring out which ones might be psychoactive and which ones weren't, and how he does that is part of the talk that I think you're going to enjoy hearing just in a few minutes. Now, if you're not a chemist, uh, don't worry, because Sasha's he's always good about peppering the chemistry part of his lecture with all kinds of interesting little stories and anecdotes. To tell you the truth, I've always thought of Sasha's talks more as performance art pieces than lectures. Now, if you go to our uh, podcast page at matrixmasters.com, then uh, you'll find Sasha's name in the listing for our program 22 of the Psychedelic Salon. That's the one you're listening to right now. And click on Sasha's name, and you'll, take and, uh, you'll be taken to a, a page where I posted a picture that I took of Sasha while he was giving one of his talks uh, back in the late 90s. And I think you'll get a, a little idea of how animated he can get when he, he really gets into his topic. In fact, in, in the recording you're about to hear, uh, Sasha was talking so fast at one point that Ann had to ask him to slow down a bit. And, uh, and he did, for about two minutes or so. <laughs> Since uh, I'm not a chemistry whiz myself, whenever Sasha gets on one of his rolls about moving this atom to that ring and then flipping it over or something like that, I just pretend I'm listening to the world's greatest auctioneer. <laughs> Only I know he's not selling anything. He's just waxing poetic about some of my favorite chemicals. You know, it's too bad we don't have a, a video of this performance. In fact, there wasn't even a professional recording service there at the time. Fortunately for us, Kevin Whitesides was there, and he had the presence of mind to turn on his tape recorder. So without any further ado, here is Sasha Shulgin talking about natural versus synthetic psychedelic compounds. talk about today is the synthetic side of things. Uh, the seem to know there's a, a very good friend of mine, now dead, name of Terence McKenna. He was giving a, uh, a lecture one time at Esalen. 
remember that, Andy, remember that testimony uh, lecture Aaron did about 10, 15 years ago? 10 years ago? Not here. He was, he was giving this long talk about the beauties of ayahuasca, the beauties of DMT, and all these natural, natural psychedelics. And not very deeply disguised under his uh, discussion was the fact if it ain't natural, it probably ain't safe and not good. Which he wouldn't say it quite that way, but he knew there was a prejudice sneaking in there about natural as opposed to exclusive thing. And he's commenting about these very excellent natural materials, and he's about ready to go a little bit more negative on the synthetics than uh, the audience saw me. And he didn't want to quickly tear down my little world of synthesis because he had dipped into it and appreciates it. But his theme of that, that talk was that natural versus synthetic. And so I did a little snooping around. I think uh, Jonathan was the first ones to come up with the actual numbers. DMT, methylcryptamine, which I'll get into in the, not get into in the, that sense, but get into in the lecture sense uh, a little later uh, in the hour, uh, is a, a, a good example of the conflict here because it was first synthesized by uh, Mansky up in Canada, roughly 1932, 33, 35, somewhere there. And it was discovered as a component of a South American plant about 20 years later by uh, the second reporter was the research director at Bristol for a while. That's how I learned about that. Uh, but uh, this is 20 years. It was a synthetic compound. And then it was discovered in nature. So for 20 years, from his philosophy, it's something that is not a good chemical, not a good drug. But once it was found in a tree somewhere in South America, or bush, um, it's okay. And there are about four or five drugs that are synthetic that have been found in nature. So the, the idea of keeping... I watch things that are natural be safer. Because people have used them. People have used uh, strychnine for hundreds of thousands of years. It doesn't make it safe. So you have to hold that kind of a restriction in the bands. But anyway, I want to talk about the synthetics that have come out of studying the natural materials. The first material I ever got into, uh, ooh, uh, about 1950-something or other, was synthetic mescaline. Uh, it was a beautiful, I love the appearance, a beautiful white crystalline solid. It was just, uh, the bisulfate salt, long white needles. Uh, and I took, I think it was 150, uh, 350 or 375 milligrams, I forget, it was either 350, 375. Uh, I was with three, four babysitters, and there were about four of us who were in the experiment, just enough to get into a car. One of the babysitters was the driver, I'm not sure you like, that's a good thing to keep in mind. Don't try driving a car under, that's one of the signatures, you know that. Uh, anyway, it was an interesting experience. Once I got over the initial nausea, and the nausea was not that, that really bad, it was, uh, I, I'd forgotten I had eaten not that much before, but I was reminded what I had eaten when I looked at my vomit. And there it all was. I think I had chewed up peas and some carrots and odds and ends like that. And the first thing that caught my attention that I was in a strange place is I really enjoyed looking at my vomit. Now here's out in the field on the grass, and here's this is part of me. It came out of me. It was in essence I identified with it. What in the world is going on? It was my first psychedelic experience. And that developed from there into strange, strange, fascinating areas. One, uh, we were went up to the top of the hills behind Berkeley, and one of my first close encounters with a, a, a thing in nature that I had not really ever tangled with before was a bee. And uh, I watched this bee, it came up to a flower, and the bee kind of into this blossom, and the bee saw me and ignored me. I watched the bee, I watched the blossom, looked at the interaction, and that bee was taking stuff out of this flower, 
and, and putting it something like a, like a little sack down his leg on one side. Then the blossom again, and got some more, put it in the sack on the other side. I don't know how long this went on. It may have been 25 minutes. I was watching that bee throwing stuff away. The bee, again, was aware of me and had the grace of ignoring me totally. And I watched this whole thing, and it was all gone. The bee went away. I took the flower. It's a little part of the story later on. But all kinds of things. Alongside the uh, road up there where he parked was gravel. Sort of the, there was a pave, but the gravel was on the side. The gravel was with different colored stones. And I could not get out of the car on the, on the passenger side because I saw that as the back of a, a crocodile or a, something nasty. And if I stepped on the back of that animal, I might not be safe. So I had to get on the other side of the car. Visual colors. I saw colors that were totally alien to me. I used to think I knew the designation of colors. The colors that were not... Look at a plain piece of color. And the outer edges were affected by the color of the thing that was next to it. You know, that would be green, but when there's red over here, the green became kind of purplish to reflect the red, and the red became sort of different colors to reflect the green. And I saw the colors were not a single thing. They were a continuous continuum of, of change. Fascinating. At the end of the experience, down back, I lived in Berkeley at that time, uh, went down there, and the flower, I put in a little vase on the coffee table in front of the thing, and I smelled it. It was a gorgeous smell. I was intrigued by the inside of that, of that flower. And I looked out inside, I couldn't even touch the pebbles. I mean, it was, it was a little, little bougies that carry pollen, this is what they call In the center of it, and I looked inside, I could barely, I, well, I, no, I tried to move the pebbles apart, so I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Caught my attention, the reason I mentioned the flower is my next first real synthetic experiment was with material which I had extended the chain, one carbon, to go from a phenethylamine, which is over here with a two carbon chain. Uh, this is, by the way, takes the place of slides, takes the place of projecting things. Uh, this is uh, the Jamaican effect. Anyway, uh, I'm going to use a blackboard for drawing dirty pictures, and we compromise, and I draw a phenethylene here, and a tryptamine here, and I'll point to them as we go so I don't have to use the blackboard, and uh, let that be it. Uh, I said, if this compound is this dramatic, and then I stopped and thought for a while, uh, the compound wasn't doing anything. It was I who was doing everything. Seen the color. The compound is not the white. There's no color there at all. I went into meditation with deep thoughts of early, my early, some early childhood things, in which I had found some pretty colored flowers out behind the house, another house in Berkeley where I lived. And I can remember that with great clarity, being out underneath the honeysuckle and watching up and watching out, and no one could see me because I was inside of the under the fence with the honeysuckle all around me. And I remember that with great clarity. And I began to say, where in the molecule that happens to have three methoxy groups over here and two carbon chain, is the memory of honeysuckle? Where is the knowledge of colors? Where is all this memory? Where is the ability to watch a, a, a bee without complete, with a complete immunity, uh, do its honeysuckle, do its flower thing? I said, what it is, this is not a drug that's doing anything, providing me information, doing anything for me. It is allowing me to get into myself. So in essence, it is not a, a chemical drug, but it's a catalyst that allows me internally to find things, by luck I may find things I want, I don't know what they're going to be, but I was totally fascinated. This was back in the, in the 50s. And that completely changed the direction of my entire life research. I had some knack of chemistry, and I was quite interested in things that were psychoactive. I delved around in the libraries for this, but never had gotten a psychedelic before. And that was my very first introduction.
And so, God, it's obvious. You have three, you have three, four, five prime epoxy over here to work where you want. And epoxy is two carbon chains and the mean group on this end. And that's the simplicity of the molecule. Not a very potent thing. It took a few hundred milligrams to do the job. But uh, the job is fascinating because the job was entirely from me. Not to me, but out of me. So I said, well, by golly, what can you do there? So I said, well, there's a, there's a alpha position there, and I, you know, I can put a methyl group on there. And this is where chemistry on a blackboard is such fun. And people say, well, it's easy on a blackboard, but you go to the laboratory, then you can't just go and take a little nail on a hammer and take a methyl group and whack a methyl group on the, on the side of the chain. I mean, you, you, you don't do that quite that way. On a blackboard, if all chemistry were blackboard with erasers and chalk, would be simple. You could make any molecule in about 20 seconds. But the truth is, making molecules to jive with the structure is not that much more difficult. You have to think from a different point of view, but it's all there. So I moved to the laboratory and I made the methyl group down that position, which is the amphetamine chain, carbon, 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 hanging down uh, as a mean group, the amphetamine. And to make that these nitrothane, you have to have a nitrothane, so I coupled the corresponding trimethoxy benzaldehyde. Now, don't worry about this, it's all in the book somewhere. Trimethoxy benzaldehyde, nitrothane, and reduced sodium glucosamine hydride, and there was the corresponding amphetamine. Trimethoxy amphetamine, so it's called TMH in the planet. So I looked into the chemical literature, it had been synthesized by a group of people in Canada about three years earlier, and uh, they had said it had an interesting property. If you're watching a What's this wheel that whirls around and gives you color? A, 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 a kaleidoscope. Kaleidoscope. Good. Watch a kaleidoscope and it generates colors. The colors are more intense if you take this compound first. Well, I didn't think they wanted to play with a kaleidoscope, and I, I, but I appreciate the fact that colors. And so I made the compound. If you go together twice what they use, you get into a psychedelic place. Not, a, not nearly a mescaline, but a different thing. But meanwhile, while I was preparing that compound, I said, well, nitroethane, nitropropane, nitrobutane, nitro I got all the nitroalkanes I had into one carbon, and indeed makes this more different thing. Let's add two, let's add three, let's add four, let's add five. So I synthesized about eight or nine compounds, all with different sized chains hanging down there. And by the time I had gotten the others made out here, the first one I had evaluated, it was about twice as active in potency as mescaline, but totally different in action. It was not the friendly closeness of mescaline. It was almost an aggressive, almost something you had a portrait. It, 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 it revealed in me, not again. It's not the compound who's doing it. It's me, what is being revealed from me by the compound. And uh, again, the parallel, I reason I mentioned the flower at some length with mescaline is I had a very similar flower on the coffee table in Berkeley with this. And I was curious about the smell of what's inside and I tore it apart. Tore it apart to look inside. Completely dead, destroying the flower. But with completed immunity, I mean, obviously, this is my thing, I want to look, I did it. So I took a while, I said, why is one actually so precious that you can't destroy any part of nature, and the other you can just tear it apart because you're curious? Anyway, I made the third compound of the, of the chain of eight or ten of them, not active at all, and it's a heck of the rest of them. So this, what else can we do with this molecule? That, that really got me started. If you can change an atom in a molecule, you can keep a kind of a psychoactive aspect of it, Change all the atoms. Go look around. Try this, try that, move over here. So I looked at this one, and uh, the, I think I have written over here 345. Uh, Messing with 345 carbon epoxy. You dangle the thing by the, by the, by the ring, the aromatic ring on, on, on my right, over this way, and have those methoxy down there. There are six ways you can have three methoxy in the ring. You have 234, 235, 236, 245. Two, four, six, and I wanted to, I forgot. Two, yeah. two, two, three, six. That was it. 
Uh, one is all consumed because the one is where heads are holding by holding this little thing off the Christmas tree by the dingler and holding a number of, of pips on the on the hexagons to get past things. So I made all six of them. So I have TMA two, TMA three, TMA four, TMA five, TMA six. And of course, in diligence and, and a bit of uh, inner attentiveness, assayed them all in about the same way, ran them all down. And the first one I hit was the TMA two, the one with the methoxies in the two, four, five position. As the amphetamine, alpha, alpha methyl down there. And that caught me off guard because I, uh, I happened at that point still be a, uh, an employed chemist at Dow up in, in uh, Walnut Creek in Pittsburgh. And I went in, I was not feeling very comfortable, but I went into a closet where they kept the things where they came the floors with this little, but no one who worked there would go in there because that's the janitor's place. No janitors during the day, so I felt fairly not discoverable in there. And I found myself going into a very, I thought I had very carefully had moved myself one small increment of, up of activity. I, some activity, maybe at 12, I went to 20. And 20 came on very heavy and very fast, and I was into a whole new territory that was totally scary. And so I was prejudiced against that for a while, so I tried it more carefully later on. And it's about 10 times as potent lesson. It's a great increase in potency. And a lot of visuals, but a kind of uh, a thing that didn't didn't reveal a part of me that I, I cared that much about. But that's okay. It, after, right then, I was still counting potency rather than quality. Uh, actually, both both are very valid measures of activity. And so uh, the uh, the TMA three was a two four five two two three four TMA four two three five two TMA five and two three six. And the other one, the final one, where they're uh, the opposite thing, the two four six was also potent and comparable to TMA2. So TMA2 and TMA6 were the two in there that I found to be interesting and active and worth pursuing. The whole area from that point on, this is the instead of ethylamine world, what I did, I, I, I took that basic structure and began mucking around with it, but the TMA6 structure allows fully a comparable degree of exploration, and I've never explored it. So if anyone really goes, wants to go into chemistry and get a whole new area, start with the 246 instead of 245 and duplicate everything. You're going to find fascinating compounds, do fascinating things, uh, different to make, some are more difficult, some are easier. I just haven't gotten around to that kind of other thing. I mean, you start bossing out and take this path, that path, all this, and you go past thousands of paths that go off from your past your on. None of them been explored. Oh, who knows what's out that way? You don't know. It's like going down the corridor with 55 doors. You go through a door and there's another corridor with 55 doors. What are the other doors that you go to? You don't know. There's something out there that's interesting. You've had 55 lives, you find it out. But as it is, you pursue the one that happens to catch your fancy at the moment. And that's where I went. So, you have the methoxies out there. Well, methoxy, uh, two methoxies make a, a two oxygens, and two oxygens are nothing dioxy. So, if you take that same molecule, two, three, four, five, six, or whatever, I write the six down here? I think I did. Yeah, down here. Uh, if you had to bridge a Two adjacent spots with the methanedoxy, uh, two oxygens tied together with the carbon, uh, and then put methoxy on something that's left, you have six possibilities. So I call this MMDA, methanedoxy, methamphetamine, methoxyamphetamine, and there's six of them possible, and uh, I made the five that were obvious. The six I had no way of figuring out how to make, I tried a variety of different things, never succeeded. I'm amused because they, they made the uh, methendoxy, methendoxy, methoxyamphetamine, MMDA, methoxyamphetamine, amphetamine, uh, schedule one drug by naming one of them and uh, saying that all positional isomers are also included under this definition. 
So although I can make five, uh, they only reported one, but the total of six are in Schedule 1. And I'm a little bit amused, I checked this before I came down here because I wasn't sure I'm up to date. I looked up in Chem Abstracts for the six of them. No one's ever made it. It's never been made. It's twice in the literature reported in the literature, but both because I wrote it as an interesting compound has never been made in a review article. So it's in the literature because I said it was interesting, but then it's never been made. When it came abstract, it never has been made. But it's, if the person who first succeeds in making that has come in and fuck me. <laughs> because it's a schedule. No, it's named as such, right in the, in the law, even though it's never been made. These, these are humorous parts of the law. They're a lot of poetry. <laughs> so six of those made, made five of them, and the only ones that interested were Mesendoxy in the, in the three, four position. So my attention is being sucked out to that three and four position. As it turns out, I'm not going to go into the full detail. This takes to go through all the drill steps that went on. It takes about these, oh, probably four or five hours. If you want to take the time, we need to eat dinner tonight. Uh, but anyway, I made a whole lot of those. I began looking around different different ways, different combinations of things. Uh, the next general direction I went is I settled on the 245, which is 2-methoxy, 4-5-methyldoxy, or 2-4-5-methoxy. And I made each of the methoxy into an ethoxy. And methoxy is a methyl group of oxygen. Ethoxy is two carbons out of oxygen. So in essence, if you have 2-4-5-methoxy, you can have two ethoxy 4 5 methoxy, four ethoxy, 2,5-dimethoxy, so this is a little bell that rang. Something about that four position has got uh, a little bit of spark into it. And it's a point where nature, I guess I'm natural, so I'm doing natural things. Uh, so this is the point at which I'm going to begin if I get mutations going on or changes in the way I do things. This is where I'm going to focus a little bit. So I did. I made this 245-tri-methoxy. I said, if the four position is so fancy, here's a situation where you can't lose. If you were to take and take that methoxy, I knew the methoxy came off because I can't keep collecting urines and running analyses and the methoxy disappears. I like to know what happens to it in me because sometimes you get into things in which the compound doesn't do something. The compound goes into you and it's changed to something and what it's changed to is what does things to you. So sometimes the metabolites are the things that are the active ones pursued. This is a whole other chapter of this talk, which I won't get into. Anyway, so I made, I said to myself, if the four methoxy group is the active thing, and because it comes off easily, let's say, it becomes a phenol and it conjugates with some nucleonic acid or something gets treated in urine. Let's put something on that group that can't come off easily. So I said, why not instead of a methoxy, put a methyl on there? Now, methyl can't hydrolyze off. It can oxidize to an acid, it can do all kinds of things, but it cannot hydrolyze off. We uh, love sort of an atom bomb. So I put a methyl group in there and I said, you've got a case here to win. If the compound turns out to like the receptor site somewhere in the brain, there's something to these things go and plug in and do things. If it likes that receptor site, it's going to go to that receptor site. It's going to go into the receptor site and one of two things. Either it is going to be an active psychedelic, it's going to be an interesting one because it can't hydrolyze into something that's inactive. So it might be a really potent thing. Or it might go in and be inactive. And if it's inactive, but it goes to the receptor site the psychedelic drugs tickle, and it's inactive, if there's something endogenous in the person that makes the person want you, well, that's the wrong term. Schizophrenic. Uh, schizophrenic. 
I use the word uh, I have been frequently asked to speak more slowly. <laughs> and I will do my best to accede to that request. It's good for about 40 seconds. <laughs> uh, I'll try. If it were to go into the receptor site and block the receptor site from some indigenous factor in there that makes a person schizophrenic, you have a cure for mental illness. You can't lose. It's either going to be a potent psychedelic or <laughs> For people who are a little bit schizophrenic, okay, not schizophrenic. Oh, as I gave, gave a, a, a grand rounds at Harvard, I used the word schizophrenic for psychiatry, but it's not a graceful thing to do. And uh, I got chewed up for that after. Schizophrenic is the word I meant, sorry. That's right. Talk about people who are schizophrenic. And there are, this is the side. The side. I, I don't have a time. Who's gone? Oh, boy, that's a compliment. Anyway, um, we had at, 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 at uh, Donner Labs about 20, 25 years ago, an opportunity to work with schizophrenic patients from Mendocino County when they had a whole lot of them in the mental hospital. In the mental hospital. Okay. Um, and so I made some acidosis methionine, which is a kind of neat derivative of methionine, because what they thought at the time methionine is what provokes mental illness in people who are with it in their diet and have the proclivity toward mental illness. It made it more extreme, but those who did not have that proclivity did not have that response to it. And they're using methionine as sort of a type for potential schizophrenic uh, illness. And I happen to have some radioactive sulfur knocking around, so I made it with radioactive sulfur. So you put it in there and measure the distribution of it in the in the, in the brain. You put it in here, you put people in the concentration to walk with the camera, and you put them in there, and we had these five normals, a little tricky to find them in Lawrence lab, we found them. And five schizophrenics were simple to get up in Mendocino Hospital and line them all up, and we gave each of them a separate day, separate circumstances, enough radioactive S-adenosine to see it in the brain. And we ended up with ten photographs. We put them on the wall of the, the Norris lab up on the hill, and there are pictures of the brain with this radioactive thing in there, and everyone was different. Everyone was different. Uh, some had bright here, some bright there, some lines, some hits, what have you. And we, every time anyone comes through from the National Institute of Health, coming in from the East Coast, in brain chemistry, what have you, here, 10 brain scans, that's the difference in the signing, five of the normals and five of the schizophrenics. Which are the normals? Oh, my God, we kept tallies. Random, random, random. I mean, no one could pick up which was abnormal because they're all different. And then about three months later, one of the schizophrenic patients came in, and Tony, my ally there, who could talk to schizophrenics, was great. He, he, they just sort of trusted him for some beautiful reason. And uh, he was in there, and the schizophrenic came in. Hey, those are the pictures you took of us. Well, the one of each of you. Oh, that's me. He pointed at this photograph, and <laughs> he's absolutely right. He picked his picture out of ten pictures that was of his head under his desk. You were Tony said, how do you know? Simple, simple. See the little star shape figure down the little right hand corner? It's the little figure looks like a star head. I see it all the time. <laughs> so there are a lot of things about brain chemistry we don't understand yet. <laughs> but that's the kind of thing you keep running into. Things that are apparent and obvious to someone, and suddenly you with all your sophistication in the world can't see through it at all. And that's why I love this area of chemistry, because all of a sudden you make a compound that should be a wild psychedelic and you end up convulsing. 
Whereas if you just compound it, you're totally inactive and it's active, or vice versa. And every time you add a little bit more knowledge of what's in the structure, what goes to making it active, you think you're getting a little closer to the target, you're just very opening new doors in new ways. It's actually a fascinating pursuit. Anyway, back to the, to the lecture, that was a red flag I wrote right down there. Um, back to the argument of making synthetics. So I made this compound with a methyl group at that position, which if it came off, we obviously, uh, it couldn't come off. If it blocked the receptor site, then, and the receptor site was triggered by an endogenous psychotogen, then you have indeed have a treatment for illness due to, due to internal uh, psychotomimetic things. And if it uh, is active, you got a new portal. Well, it turned out it was very active. And uh, in fact, the activity left up by a factor of about four or five fold over anything I'd made before. I called it desoxy, kept it the oxygen away to put the methyl group on it, called desoxy methyl. And then it had the slang name of DOM which was written, became quite popular about the 1960s over San Francisco. In fact, that was quite a chapter in San Francisco. At that time, I was in medical school. I remember wandering down through the hay actually memorizing the circles of Willis so I could repeat the quiz that afternoon. And all around me, people were stoned on the stuff DOM, but they called it SCP. And uh, that was originally, it was, uh, I think, a racing car oil or something. But they had it as uh, serenity, tranquility, and placidity. But no one when Stone could pronounce placidity, and so it came out serenity, tranquility, and peace. And uh, the policemen called it too stupid to puke, and they called it stop the police. It was a lot of slang about that thing, but it was put in tablets and sold as an LSD substitute. The difficulty is the tablets were 20 milligram tablets. The active dose is 5 milligrams. Who had the inspiration of making 20 milligram tablets? I don't know. And it takes a while to come on. Some of these, some of these price are two things are quite slow in onset. And people would take one, but they come on, they should come on, they take another one. They're turning into the hate aspirate clinic with 40 milligrams of the stuff on board, not knowing what it was chemically. They knew I was kind of in the area, they asked me if I knew an SCP, I'd never heard of SCP in my life, because it was initials I had never heard of. And it was about, well, three or four months before that whole thing, the manufacturer were making them cut down the level 10 and find the 5 milligrams. That kind of got a very net negative very negative uh, reputation. And indeed, those levels, it, it, it slowly come on, it's a long trip. But from my point of view, I had already discovered activity, turned over to friends of mine at John Hopkins, who were doing uh, work, not present crowd, an earlier crowd, doing work there in the area of psychedelics, and one of the ethoxy I made, the ethyl, I made the ethyl for them. They said, if you can put lovely things on there, the dope tab, I said, it's fine, things. So I stuck on a iodine, a bromine, stuck on a thiol, a methyl thiol, all kinds of other groups in that marvelous four position. Uh, and the first thing I put on is a bromine. So if this is DOB, that's DOB. Uh, the DOM, this is DOB. So made DOB, that was a quite an interesting chapter. Uh, active two or three milligrams. You take it, you don't really begin turning on for about four or five, six hours. You're into it for the night. You sleep through the night. Next day you're still stoned. You are really in for a 36-hour trip. It's quite a, it's quite a, a time-consuming thing. Uh, so this, we did this up at, uh, on the hill at the Lawrence Lab. We uh, made the material, probably oh, just down at Donner, in Berkeley, down at Berkeley campus. Uh, we had access to all the instruments in the world. This is before there any such things as psychedelic drugs, before any such things as illicit laboratories. And we worked at the Lawrence Lab down there, Lawrence Lab up there. Psychotron, we could run a psychotron, we had keys to the psychotron, we had keys to the gamma counters, we had keys to everything. Because we go in at night and do whatever we want. They object now, they rather appreciate As long as we publish, Anything we can do, anything we want. So we made that with the bromine um, DOB. 
Bromine 77 and Bromine 82. I think we use both of the, uh, of the gamma emitting isotopes. The Bromine 77 is the one we worked with more. And what we did, we said, if this thing is, let's see what it does in the body. So we made a nice sterile solution and injected intravenously about a, maybe a fraction of a milligram because we didn't want to get that stone. We just wanted to see where it goes in the body. We lay out this gamma bed scanner and it, it moves with you lying out across this way with a bunch of gamma detectors underneath here. And as you go across with the gamma detectors, that's if they were scanning up the body, except it's scanning the way you go ahead first. And over here is a great big monitor and lines that show what the gamma thing is seeing. They see an outline of the body. Here's the head, here's the hands, here's the body, here's the head, here's the legs. So you just scan too fast. Yeah. And here are the legs. So you scan this thing slowly and you can get time-lapse photography of where it's going through you by taking this picture, then this picture again, this picture again, as a film and, and show it as time-lapse photography. Beautiful. So we saw this thing going into the body, it got a little messy, not very good at intervening injections, got a little thing in the tissue around here, it's a little spot over here. You can see the bladder slowly going to the sides of the nape, the sides of the orange, the sides of the grapefruit, because the urine is collecting it, and the urine has to be radioactive, so the bladder shows up as being radioactive. And we want to see how much goes to the brain. Almost none. Holy moly, we looked at this more carefully over the period of time, and very little was going to the brain, mostly going to the lungs. And so we go eat a little more. This little level begins dropping off, and then the brain level starts going up. So a part of the stuff is snagged in the lung. The lung is about the second most potent metabolizing organ in the body. And then it's metabolized as something that carries a radioactive isotope with it, the bromine goes with it. But it's not the starting material, it's a different material. And then the lung goes down, the brain goes up, the person gets turned on, goes sparkle, sparkle, and it takes many hours for it to really drop completely down out of the brain. So here we're seeing something in which the active component is not what we thought it was, it's something the body generates from what we gave to the body. No idea what it is. No one's ever pursued it. We thought so, they no one's given it damn, no one's ever looked at it. But it's interesting, DOB, a very long-lived thing, uh, is extremely long-lived because of a metabolic change, and we looked at the urine and mammograph this that never did find out what the radioactive bromine is attached to. These are little fun things you do on the side. Meanwhile, you know, we make our we make our own bromine. We know how to turn the cyclotron on. The alcohol I'll switch over here, focus a little bit, make your isotopes. Ah, that's marvelous. Because those are marvelous days. No longer do they have such liberty, I'm afraid. They now want to know what you're going to do and to whom and why. At that time, you can do anything you want, for any reason you want, and anyone you want. It's absolutely marvelous. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so that, as I put it, happened, I put it, Romy, but I did not DOI. In fact, that's an interesting cut. DOI is equally potent, long-lived, to a couple milligrams is all you want to ever handle with DOI. Uh, and interestingly enough, there's a company in the East Coast, uh, in the Boston area, that makes isotope labeled or unlabeled materials for neurological testing. They have agonists, various neurotransmitters here and there. And they have both DOB and DOI. They offer DOB requires a DEABND222 form and, and all kinds of communication because it happens to be a Schedule One drug. But they never, never scheduled DOI. Equally potent, equally powerful, equally long-lived. And they sell it there without any restrictions whatsoever. But once they found it was psychedelic, the price went up fivefold. But they're in the business of selling agonists for neurotransmitters. Uh, so it's there, but if anyone really has a, has a, a academic license, they want to get turned on with DOI and buy samples uh, from commercial sources. No problem. Anyway, so this is all going on. I still haven't gotten around to I'll get to that on my topic pretty soon, which is new cryptomines, but you have to be patient. I'm told I still have 25 minutes. I'm told I still have 25 minutes. Yeah. Okay.
Why don't you wiggle your hands remember any short of time? So, if all this is going on, what about this Mazda 2 card thing? That's all with the methyl group hanging down in that alpha position. Take the methyl group off. You're back to phenethylamines again. So I went back to phenethylamines. I found the bromo compound, the iodo compound, the sulfur compound, the alkyl sulfur compound. Uh, all these things uh, are, are, are fascinating as amphetamines. And I knew to be less potent as phenethylamines, but what about them? So I synthesized all of those things. And uh, one of them that really caught my fancy was the verbal compound. It's called 2CB. Because 2CB, because it only has two carbons. I went from three back to two. And then I named the thing on the fourth position, which is down here somewhere, as what's on there. So 2CB is a bromine that position, all of the 2,5-dimethoxy. Uh, iodine has an iodine there. 2CB is illegal. 2CI is not. Uh, just to keep it in mind, it is of comparable activity. Some people prefer it to the bromo, some people prefer the bromo to the iodine, but I'm making a 50-50. So keep in the back of mind, 2CI is a fascinating thing. The sulfur composition led to what I call 2CT, T for thio, 2C4, 7 just became scheduled, oh, that's by something, 2CT7, which has been a, not a notorious thing in, in a lot of publications recently. Uh, it was just made as of roughly the first of the of the last month, a Schedule 1 drug, and it's proposed for scheduling in terms of the power of being scheduled. And it's rather an interesting little twist in that they have actually cited, because no one's ever approached the chemistry, they had no choice but cite, citing PCAL as a method of synthesis, which I found to be interesting in the Federal Register to find a book I wrote being a synthesis citation for a new scheduled drug. That's the way it goes. Uh, sulfur deposition, alkyl deposition, 2CM is the methyl compound, not interesting. It's been used as a more or less uh, almost like a placebo extender of other things. 2CE, the, the ethyl compound is the fascinating one. Purple compounds acting mutable begins dropping off. These are whole areas that I thought would be fascinating, explored a lot of them, but then I caught, caught, caught up in the world of cryptomates. And as you can go any thousands of doors in the, in the uh, hallways of the phenethylamines, basically they'll get into that hallway, phenethylamines are hallway over here, there's cryptamines, in which there's thousands of doors, and every door leads to other doors. And so I got off in this cryptamine area. In the cryptamines, there are several that are natural, maybe five, six. You have DMT, dimethyltryptamine, and here we have the cryptamine. And I have a, a, a chain out here with the nitrogen. So the di NN dyes are alkyl groups on the nitrogen over here. And the four and the five position are the only places on the on the cryptamine ring where substitution things. Oh, right here. Still here. I have here. Yeah. I will have these, these. I'll get around to these in about seven minutes. Whatever. Uh, the natural ones: DMT, dimethyltryptamine. Uh, in a chapter in the second book that Dan and I wrote, I have a chapter entitled DMT is everywhere, and believe me, it is grasses, it's in leaves, it's in every, every darn thing under the sun. It's beautifully widely distributed. It's in you, it's in your spinal column, it's in your brain fluids. And so I'm really amused when they have DMT as being uh, Schedule 1, and anything that contains it means that everyone in this room is, is containing a scheduled drug and is subject to the corresponding punishment of becoming a felon with 10 to 20 years in prison if they choose not to like you for other reasons. But that, these are in you. These are in your brain system. These are natural things. That's one reason I think the DMT, you can smoke a joint of DMT, get over it, whatever you think, smoke another joint, have another trip, get over it, smoke another joint, have another trip. You don't exhaust yourself because it's a natural compound in you. And your body has a way of handling and taking care of it. So one of the major ones there is a diethyl, dimethyl, cryptamine, N and dimethyl on this end, with nothing on the four or five position. 
Um, the another one is the uh, the fourth position. You put an oxygen. You have then the four uh, hydroxy N-N-dimethyltryptamine, combining the silicin, which is one of the two words that the DEA consistently misspells. They somebody spell it with a C Y N at the end of CIS. But they always spell marijuana with an H. Have you ever received federal publications on marijuana? Always an H instead of a J. Why? I don't know. <laughs> oh, the whole thing about marijuana and the DEA, this, I'm not even going to talk about marijuana today, but I've already started, so I'm going to talk about marijuana just that little bit. It's a fascinating thing. On the old, old, old crowd in the DEA, who used to be in the Bureau of Narcotics, called BNBD, which used to be the Bureau of Narcotics, BN. And back in that time when they made marijuana a uh, they went those to say the scheduled drug, they made it they made it a narcotic by definition in nineteen thirty six approximately. Uh, there were only two narcotics, basically there are varieties of but two nuclear narcotics, and that was cocaine and, and opium and uh, heroin or working and opium. And when they, when, uh, what is his name, Anslinger was the guy who made his career on uh, getting uh, to be a Bureau of Narcotics, yeah, famous and well-known, uh, put it in there, it was, of course, classified as a narcotic. So legally, marijuana is a narcotic in old federal law, which is fascinating. And uh, there are people in the old, the old, old crowd still looks upon marijuana as a narcotic, because that's what it was when they came into the thing in the 30s, and it's still there. And so the term, this is sort of an inside joke, but you're welcome to share it if you want. In the DEA, people who still believe uh, that marijuana is a narcotic are called Jurassic narcs. That's the retired crowd of people who have this as part, part of their vocabulary. But that's all been changed with, uh, as, as Johnson went into a great deal from the, that combined to the what was in the uh, BDAC, the Bureau of Drug Abuse Control, which was run by the FDA. The FDA ran a drug control system there in the Department of Agriculture, of course. But the, B, the Bureau of Narcotics was run by the Department of Treasury. Nothing to do with, with health, nothing to do with justice, but Treasury and Agriculture. Then they're combined in the BNDD, Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, which from, went from roughly uh, 1968 to about 1973. And then that was dissolved and became the Bureau of uh, the Drug Enforcement, DEA Drug Enforcement Administration. Anyway, bounce along a little bit more. Four hydroxy group over on the cryptamine four position. Uh, is silicin, the phosphate ester of it is psilocybin, the two major active components of the mushrooms, which I'm sure some of you have already experimented with from across the street. Uh, and, uh, psilocybin is the name of the phosphate ester. Uh, I've often wondered, uh, curiously, if it's active by itself or does it have to split down to silicin to be active? The question was answered about a year ago by some Swiss pharmacologists and physicians who gave psilocybin to some innocent people and found in the blood level of psilocin appearing almost immediately. So psilocybin is converted to psilocin in vitro, in vivo, uh, as a metabolite. And then, of course, there's uh, uh, the, the uh, subversion, there's uh, the, the semilanciata, uh, what do you call it, the, the beocysteine in the, in the psilocybin beocystis. The beocysteine is the one that has the phosphate group of the, of the Four position oxygen, but only one methyl group on the on the amine. There's norbeocysteine. Its activity has never been established in man. Beocysteine is active in man, but norbeocysteine, which has a phosphate group on the four position, phosphate oxides on the four position, and no methyl groups on the nitrogen, has not been assayed in man. Don't know about it. I had a good friend, Art Paul, who's a uh, chemistry professor at uh, Ann Arbor, who had done the first isolation of both beocysteine and norbeocysteine from psilocybin beocystis. 
And uh, I asked him, I would like to run TLC on these if you have reference standards. So I need just a hundred micrograms all I would need of each of them. So I set up a TLC thing and assay different mushrooms for the composition of these. And said, you know, if, by the way, do you know if it's active or not? Said, I don't know, but I had some graduate students working around there pretty diligently. They may, they may, they may have suspected one thing or another. So they went to get a few uh, hundred micrograms as a reference sample for me. The vials had totally disappeared. They were gone. They came back with knowledge that I don't have any reference samples left. I suspect the graduate students have found the thing. They may be able to tell you if they're active. <laughs> but I, at the moment, later, to this point, no one knows about the activity of neurobasicine. I do not know. I've never tried it. And I can't get reference samples from Bishop. Anyway, um, on the five position over here, another natural one is a 5-hydroxy, not 4-methoxy, 4-hydroxy is the, uh, is the silicin. The 5-hydroxy is, and with a dimethyl group on this end, is known as botanine. And it has a fair amount of notoriety, so you have to do one drug. I have for a long time assumed that the botany was not an active compound. The only human studies were done in the, these marvelous narcotic hospitals, whatever uh, Jonathan called them, places that are prisons, and you get lots of people up and then give them drugs. Uh, narcotics. Prisoner narcotic prison type hospital experimental places. Uh, really wild. They, they put people in there. They say, we'd like to have, try this compound, and we'll try it with botany. You mind? Show it, okay. And you can line them up, you in, inject with botany and five people. And they say, well, Doc, Doc, Doc what, what do you want to see? Well, know if you see colors. Okay. And they load them up with 16 milligrams each intravenously, and they sure saw colors. And if they report well, they know what's needed to be seen. They kind of report in that direction because as a thank you for having put themselves into that Jeopardy position for the day, they're giving a pass to the pharmacy and they can get any drug they want. And so they're in there presumably to be treated for drug addiction. And the truth is they have access to the pharmacy by being experimental subjects for any drugs they happen to want anyway. And they, the pharmacy kept heroin on hand and had a heavy flow of that. This is all kind of quieted. The hospitals don't exist anymore, but for a while they were notorious as being one of the major academic sources of information in the area of action in math. So that is where the uh, the botany was first studied by hydroxy and then dimethyl. Uh, and they got sort of a colored viewing. The face is turned a little bit orange, but you have some of this flush, these here called serotonin flush, you get these things from other things. And I was really skeptical of the materials, and they're really not active. Then a paper would appear from Australia that said, oh yes, it's active, we found by intravenous administration, so and so, so much, gave very strong action. Then a paper appeared from Norway, say, we gave the that amount of people, had no action at all. And so they just balanced 50-50 of active, not active. The whole thing was that way, going. Finally, good friends of mine got it out of a pre anthra uh, uh, what was the South American pre anthra one is Sibyl. Uh, Sibyl Columbrina. Yes, Columbrina. Sibyl. This is uh, Donna and, not Donna, but uh, uh, Manolo and uh, Recky. And they took uh, seeds of this and they ground up the seeds, heated them up a little bit, because they're finding them in these mummy uh, things. They, they, they mummies it down there at the uh, high levels that have been intact for years. And they find with the mummies these little snuff crates where they, they had used the snuff. And they're assaying the stuff trays for residues of plants to know what the stuffs are made out of. And these are, what, how, a thousand years old, maybe? Twelve hundred. Twelve hundred years old. And the plant residues are in there intact. And you can tell the quality of the stuff by the quality of the clothes that was on the money. 
higher class, better clothes, too. It's not. So you began making a sociological study of what classes used what kinds of snuff. And when you're coming up with was this uh, antithesis. And they made up a seed thing, ground it up, heat a little bit, stored it. I never did, did you? Uh, and actually, and yet the GC shows nothing in there but bufotony. So, okay, I have to back away a little bit. I, I'll say, okay, I, I was wrong. It, it apparently is active. Uh, my one case is one of my favorite psychiatrists wanted to snort, so he took my entire supply up the nose and got nowhere. And so I assumed it was not active, but then it may have been the, it's not an active psychiatrist. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, this is where these are. So what I am now have uncovering is the fact that with a hydroxy group at this position, at the five position, you have interesting compound. That, that's the, on the handout. That's the first thing on the handout. Uh, I have it on the handout. The upper one on the five methoxy, five hydroxy, five H, five hydrogen on, this, on, the, on the five position. And what I have across the top, methyl, uh, H, methyl, ethyl, isopropyl is a methyl, and then the methyl stuck on it. Propyl is a three-carbon chain, allyl is a three-carbon chain, with a little bond in it. And going down this way, then between the two of them, you get the two substituents on that nitrogen. If it's an H, there's only one substituent. If it's an HH, there are no substituents. So in that, by a little bit of thought, you can see what the actual structure is. These are a top one, are all five hydrogen, mostly N this and N that substituted tryptines. And I've written in there, uh, 250 tryptine itself is kind of a blood pressure change. You're not a nice thing. Uh, Dimethyltryptamine, I gave an activity level of 60, 60 uh, milligrams of dose. It has to be smoked or taken uh, parenterally. It is not active orally. Some people go to 140. Is with me quite active. I find, it, although it's a, it's a thing loved by a lot of <coughs> experimentalists, I happen to find it a dull thing. <coughs> and primarily, I find myself suddenly lying flat on my back, wondering what the hell I'm doing here, unable to move, visions everywhere. So what? I want. I just soon start doing something else. And about 30, maybe 40 minutes, I'm able to get around a little bit. So that's why the point to me is many people dislike. I happen to absolutely love it. <coughs> anyway. Let me go down here, uh, the methyl ethyl, methyl isopropyl, methyl propyl, notice you get larger groups out there, activity of uh, 60 milligrams, 80 milligrams, 20 milligrams, greater than 20, means that they're going higher than 20. The diethyl is a fascinating compound. In the diethyl, over in here, uh, is active at 100 milligrams, but it's quite poisonous. It just gives you a bad thing. You vomit. You are not comfortable body. Your body has been poisoned. And I found quite often when you have those two carbons on either on that nitrogen, and including this horror over here, I have it as pyridol, uh, piperidine rather, T, at 50 milligrams. I've made others, but uh, that's as far as I go. Again, very toxic. And I'll get down to the same thing with the 5 methoxy, see if it's worse down below. <coughs> but anyway, all the, the dyes are 60, 80, 40 here, 40 there, 250 there, 200 down the bottom, the diallyl. The diallyltryptamine, that I've indicated at 80 milligrams, is an interesting compound. It's published first by Stephen Zaha, who is the head of the research of psycho something or other in uh, NIDA, and I knew him quite well. He was a great experimenter, and he'd always make these compounds up, and he always made them in a casual way. In fact, often he had some technician make the compounds, and the technician was not particularly uh, adept in chemistry, and sometimes what was made had little resemblance to what he thought was made, and sometimes the label on the bottle did not have that much integrity as to what was in the bottle. I found this out because there's a person who I'm not named, who was called a perennial graduate student who had a PhD from somewhere in Israel, and he spent a year in every laboratory in the world to learn how they knew and how he could contribute 
and he worked for a while at NIDA and did analyses on a lot of these things. I'm sorry, it's interesting compounds. Many are correct, some are wrong. So it's a little bit of a question mark over in advance. He reported 80, he reported 60, and then in a review reported 100 as being the active level of di, of the dialocryptamine. Top half of the paper at the bottom, A-L-A-L-S-D-A-L-P. And uh, I, I actually went to the original paper. He said, uh, he gave it in a table. In the second paper, he alluded to the first paper as being something we tried, gave no pharmacology at all. And two subsequent papers he wrote, he merely alluded to the second paper and no details, but it's in there. It's in all the review papers as well. The second half of my time still, and? Ten more minutes. Ten more minutes, okay, good. Uh, I will wind up in case I have The second half, the lower half of the table, is all this with a five methoxy group on there. And it's laid, uh, laid out in the same general pattern way. So what is up there, you go to the same shape down below and compare it without and with the methoxy group. And suddenly you have tens and sixes and twos and twelves and eights and sixteens. Then your activity is up by a factor of about five. In potency. And again, the diethyl is a really nasty one. The diethyl 5 epoxy and the diethyl cryptamine should be active up around 10 or so milligrams by logic. 10 above it, 12 down below. But at 2 milligrams, my first one is a 3 quarters of a milligram. I had thought the back door of the house of And this is not usual when you smoke something like that. That When you take something over like that, it's very quickly vomiting. And uh, then I, I cautiously went up to, I think, one and a quarter milligrams. Um, three or four or five days later, vomiting again and then violent diarrhea. It was a very definitely toxic thing to the body. And I, the psychedelic level should be around 10 if anything extrapolates with any rational aspect. Uh, nowhere near 10, believe me, because I can't get over two with, without really being a threat. So the diethyl again, the corresponding uh, piperidine compound, piperidine is two ethyl groups attached to the carbon atom. So in essence, you have that same diethyl matrix. At two extremely negative at two milligrams orally. So that whole diethyl is a suspect. But the diisopropyl, uh, that would be the one of the IPA on the left and IPA overhead, I have it as 12 milligrams, is the one that's gotten very uh, uh, notorious right now on the internet under the name of originally uh, Foxy Methoxy, or Methoxy Foxy, I forget which came first. Uh, no one knew what a Methoxy was, it was just called Foxy. Uh, and I think it's still commercially available. It's not illegal. It's one that I was quite interested in because although I found it to be a rather mysterious and not particularly pleasant psychedelic, but, but real, very, very real, a lot, a lot of sound distortion and, uh, and um, visual, uh, what I found uh, in, in subsequent exploring around that about a third or half the dosage it had almost no psychedelic action. But his primary value is increased intensity, this increase of intensity of orgasm. It, like Viagra will give you the thing sticking out there, but it doesn't do anything on the orgasm intensity. This doesn't do a thing for erection. But once you get the orgasm, obviously the combination of the two. In fact, we had a fellow down at Palenque who worked for Pfizer, I leave his name unmentioned, who was intrigued by the fact that the, uh, that the, uh, this methoxy anandiastropropyltryptamine did enhance orgasm. He made some back in Pfizer that had verified by Quiet Male that it worked for him too. Uh, and this Pfizer is what makes the Viagra. So he sent a letter to the higher echelons in Pfizer. Here's a combination of drugs that would be a fantastic winner if you can get them together and put them this way. And uh, he sent me a cast quiet, unidentified copies of the two people in higher management who answered. One of them says, interesting idea, but we don't want to get into it. 
The other was that you're out of your skull. So that's nothing that comes into reality, not to be faster anyway. Anyway, so the reason I'm interested in this is for a number of reasons. The very bottom, lower right-hand corner, the diallyl, which I call 5-methoxy salt, is one I just now recently uh, finished running up. Anna and I shared it uh, a few days ago, a few couple of weeks, a few weeks ago. Uh, strain at 16 milligrams, uh, 12 milligrams is active, 8 milligrams is noticeable. Uh, not a psychedelic, this is a psychedelic, but you are in a, my first response is, I was looking at the, at from up here, at all the floor and all the furniture from about 10 feet in the air. And that's if I were 10 feet tall looking down at things. Music, interesting, not a total ally, but the, enough to indicate two, three carbon chains and those bonds in there are fascinating. So I mean, I'm making vigorously with triple bonds. I call this is the propargyl group, the dipropargyl. I'm making the compound, the cyclopropyls. So you have your three carbon to form rings. Uh, chemistry is a little tricky in these. I'm making the compound. Oh, a beautiful thing. I'm, uh, I made this. How many know what deuterium is? <coughs> it's like hydrogen, exactly like hydrogen, except it's a little bit heavier and it's a little bit smaller. It's kind of, so kind of. So I took five methoxy and mean and very carefully made isopropyl iodide, bromide, I use the bromide, it is me, isopropyl bromide with 14 deuteriums. And I put it on the pricamine. So I have what I call D14, which is diisopropyl 14 deuterium labeled of 5 methoxy pricamine. Who wants to guess if it's going to be more active, same activity, or less active than the compound without 14 deuteriums? More. No votes. Same. Uh, half a dozen. Less. Uh, half a dozen. Because I have no foggiest idea. I'm still running up, but these are the fascinating things to answer. Here you have two big isopropyl groups sticking out on this nitrogen over this way. Two isopropyl groups that are 14 molecular units more massive than the parent compound. The PKA, PKB of the mean is probably off by a couple tenths of a, of a unit, but I don't, I don't care about that too much, but I have a bearing on it. But it's a little more snug. If the deuterium alpha and deuterium are more snug, they're smaller than the ones with the hydrogen, because they're the, that's the way they are. So here's a case where it's either going to be more active, same activity or less active, but to my knowledge, no one's taken a psychoactive drug, or very few drugs at all and made all the hydrogens out in the valid part of the molecule into deuteriums. What a fascinating thing. Unanswered. This, that's exactly where I, I'm going now. This, <coughs> you, have the, you have the hydrogen, five hydrogen up here, the five methoxy down there. What I'm very interested in now is the five ethoxy. This is going from, a, from one carbon deal oxygen to a two carbon deal oxygen. The parent compound is five ethoxy cryptamine. <coughs> it has been made and studied in this country, one laboratory, in Russia, in one laboratory, primarily as a protection against radiation poisoning. There's nothing to do with the psychoanything. It has been made there. So I took all and went through the chemical literature to find out how many people have made dimethyl, dimethyl, diethyl, isopropyl, propyl, allyl, any of these compounds. None of them have been assayed in man. In fact, the, the paracrypamine has not been assayed in man. And of all those compounds, not one has even been synthesized. The whole family of dimethyl, diethyl, dipropyl, diisopropyl, di what you name it, are not in the literature. They've never even been made. I think Clinton made, made some of those. He made with the alkyl group. With 5-ethoxy. 5-ethoxy, yeah. but not on alkyl. 
I don't think there are apples on the, on the uh, napkin, were there? Yeah, I think there are apples on there. I have I, this literature, I have his writing, then... I might be wrong, but... I, I will pursue it through his name uh, in the literature. But I know he had made a lot of old alkyl, long chain alkyls. Yeah. Uh, Probe was out to the Bulos, I think it went out to the death vessel or out to sea uh, 8 or yeah, 9 or 10. Yeah. I did not realize he had put goodies on the nitrogen. Yeah. I'll find out, I'll find out. Okay. okay. Uh, he, he, he's the kind of work you'd be into. Yeah. Uh, Glennon is in uh, Virginia. Uh, chemist, uh, laboratory <coughs> versus Virginia Richmond. Anyway, to me, this is to a, is this may be an exception that I don't think he's nimble, I assure you. Uh, these are compounds that are to a large measure, I think, probably all, but maybe mostly all, not only unexplored, but actually unmade. Here's an absolutely virgin territory that's caught my fancy so much that I've sort of closed in a quiet way some of the cactus thing into abeyance. Because I want to get in the laboratory and start looking things on night, which is kind of where I am, where I'm going now. This kind of picture of where things are and where they're going to go, I'll tell you later when I find out. Any questions? Questions, questions, questions. I'll, I'll check the question. Uh, question. Is deuterium okay to ingest? Um, basically, in an organic molecule, it's often casually thought of as not influencing the action of the molecule at all. You take pure deuterated water, heavy water, B2O, and you start guzzling down much of that, you're not going to live long. Because it gets in the way of kinetics a lot of body chemistry. You take pure deuterium oxide, heavy water, and feed it to plants, the plants die. But up to about a certain percentage of different plants and different animals, you can go with deuterated water and get away with it. I, the number pops into mind, something like 50 or 60% heavy water allows you to let the animal or plant survive. But that, that is a very vital, very high concentration. In a molecule, deuterium is having to be doing a lot of work with nicotine, nicotine metabolites. For example, a problem, how does a person uh, who is a chronic smoker metabolize uh, nicotine? Well, you have to get nicotine into him. How do you get the nicotine into him? You can see, because he's using nicotine anyway, he's a smoker all the time, but you want to see how he handles it. You can't give him nicotine, because he's taking nicotine all the time. So you put three deuteriums on nicotine, or four deuteriums on nicotine, give it in a patch with that, or an injection with that special thing, and with all the nicotine all the time in the body, you can see this deuterated thing come up, come out there and drop off. So you begin getting a metabolism of deuterated nicotine in a smoker, and we compare it with the metabolism of deuterated nicotine in a non-smoker. It gives a very small amount, you don't get a nicotine effect, yet we've got permission from the uh, university to do this kind of work in normal people. And to a large major, it does not influence the action of the drug. To a large major. Uh, within our accuracy, there's no effects there. The area of Deuterate, that means all the hydrogens possible going into deuterium is a virtually unstated area. Yes? You mentioned a few of these that are uh, positively psychoactive and still legal. Um, what can I get So let me know if, what you find in any of interest. Yeah. Uh, be cautious. Remember, if you buy them as psychoactive materials that have oxygen similar to, or substantially similar to, a Schedule one drug, then you are indeed violating a basic rule of the of the analog bill, and they may be legal to buy if you want to see if they make petunias turn from red to green blossoms. But taking in you to emulate the action of scheduled run is a crime. It can be charged as a crime, and a jury may find you guilty of one. Thank you very much. I guess I should have probably warned you that 
During his talk, Sasha was referring to some handouts with drawings of the molecules he was describing. And, of course, uh, that's what made it possible for him to go so fast a few times. But you've got to admit that a few of those speed-talking sections were really music to your ears, weren't they? And by the way, if anyone happens to have a copy of those handouts and can scan them and send them to me, I'll be happy to uh, post them on the Shogun's page on our Planque Norte site. So uh, that'd be great to get out there if somebody has one or two copies still hanging around somewhere. So I hope you weren't planning on hearing a definitive answer on that great uh, debate about natural versus some synthetics. You know, I know that uh, Sasha uh, mentioned the topic a few times, but I, I can't say I'm any more clear on the subject than I was before. Uh, Personally, I take the, the safe bet side of that issue, and even though the psychoactive molecules are the same either way, I'm, I'm keeping my bet on the natural side simply because, uh, as you already know, there's always the possibility that in addition to the, the known psychoactive substances, there could also be some other chemical presence that maybe combine and synergize the main ingredient to give you a little bit more bang for the buck. Who knows? And uh, didn't you find it interesting that in many cases it was only after the compound had been synthesized in a laboratory that uh, it's discovered later in nature? You know, I've heard rumors that even our beloved MDMA appears to have a natural counterpart somewhere out there uh, growing wildly. Now that you've heard what goes into designing a, a substance that just might be psychoactive, and you chemists, of course, can also appreciate the steps required to synthesize a new compound, well, stop for just a minute and think about the last and I think most important step in this whole process, and that's the human testing step. Not only did Sasha create those 200-plus compounds he talks about in his books, he also tested them on himself. Now here, I believe, is, is uh, at least for me, the most important part of Sasha's story. He always began with extremely small amounts, and then, if he didn't get a tingle of some kind, he would still only increase the dose a really small amount on the next trial, which would be, you know, days later. Caution, caution, extreme caution, I think is probably why Sasha Shulgin has lived to such a ripe old age. And I hope he, he is an example to those of you out there who might be inclined to always begin testing something new, at least new to you, by starting at the, the high end of the suggested dose scale. And, of course, you know, if, if you don't know the recommended dose on something, uh, you know, go to P-Call, T-Call. I don't need to tell you how to synthesize and have experience reports, but it uh, also has uh, the dosage recommendations. So. so don't try to be a hero, you know. Taking overly high doses doesn't uh, make you a hero in my book. It's really pretty foolish, you know. So be careful out there. We need each and every one of you. Besides, you don't want to miss all the fun that's coming on down the pike at us, do you? Well, I guess I better quit chattering here and uh, let you go for now. If you're looking to buy a copy of P-Call or T-Call or both, 
I think it'd be very cool of you to buy it directly from the Shulgin's Publishing Company, which is Transform Press at Post Office Box 13675 in Berkeley, California, 94712. And I <laughs> have to admit, I, I forgot to ask Ann and Sasha what they're charging for a copy of their books these days, and so I'll... I'll Send them an email and find out, and I'll post it on uh, our webpage on the Matrix Master site as soon as I know. So uh, you can get to, get to that Shulgin page through the podcast, as you know. And, uh, of course, uh, you can also get a copy of their books at uh, Amazon and, and in most bookstores. Well, thank you, Sasha, for letting us podcast this talk and and for everything you've done for all of us. You know, saying thank you just isn't even close to expressing how the tribe feels about you and Ann. So thank you both for everything. And a great big thank you to John Hanna, who produced all these Mind States conferences, and, of course, to Kevin Whitesides for the recording. Jacques Cordell and Wells of Chateau Hayuk, thanks, as always, of course, for the use of your music here in the Psychedelic Salon. And, and I want to thank each and every one of you out there for joining us here in the Psychedelic Salon. For now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Hi, this is Lorenzo again. The program you just heard was one of my first 70 podcasts, which I produced in 2005 and 2006. Over the last few years, I like to think that the shows have gotten a little better, and uh, now there are around 200 free programs for you to listen to here in the salon, with more coming out each month. For the first four years of the salon, our expenses were covered by a small army of donors who contributed their hard-earned cash to help offset the costs of equipment, disk space, and uh, bandwidth, among other things. And some of those donors have repeated their generosity on more than one occasion. But it's always kind of bothered me that, uh, by mentioning the donors' names at the beginning of the program, I was also indirectly uh, soliciting more donations for the salon. And, uh, in a way, I guess that's uh, a fair assessment. However, the majority of our fellow saloners, I find, aren't in a position to make a donation. And from the email I receive, it seems to bother people that they can't do that. So I've made a little change lately in that I removed the donation button from our webpage and stopped accepting monetary donations. Instead, I have decided to fund the operation of the salon from the sales of my audiobook, The Genesis Generation. And while the $12 cost is still too much for many of our saloners, we only have to sell about a dozen books a month to cover our costs, and uh, so far we're on track for doing that. So if you're interested in helping to support the Psychedelic Salon financially, you can do so by either buying a copy of my novel for yourself or by sending a gift certificate for one to a friend. And as you already know, you can listen to the first chapter for free in my podcast number 186. And if after hearing the first chapter, should you want to buy a copy, you may do so through my website at www.genesisgeneration.us. And, uh, hey, thanks again for listening to the Psychedelic Salon. I'm really glad you found us. <laughs>